It's always great to be here with you guys today. And um, so we are in the middle of a series on the power of a dream. We've been talking about Joseph. Uh, so we kind of meet up with Joseph when he's 17 years old. And, and we've been talking about the fact that, you know, he was, as a typical 17-year-old might do, not necessarily have the filter he should, and was very uh, outspoken about his dreams of ruling over his family. And um, that landed him quickly into a cistern. And uh, after a quick meal, they then decided that instead of Leaving him there for dead, they would instead sell him to some Ishmaelites and make a profit off of getting rid of their brother. And so that is where we are. So they have sold, the brothers have sold Joseph into slavery. And um, throughout all of this, we've been talking about the power of the dream, right? The dream that first drove Joseph to speak out. And the dream that we believe God lays on our hearts. And so I know last week Rick challenged you, you know, have you really been digging in and asking God, what is that dream for my life? What dream does he have in store for me? I know he suggested that maybe it, maybe it's a relationship that needs some healing. Perhaps a parent or a sibling or an in-law. A friendship where there's a rift or maybe it's your job. Maybe you feel like God is really laying this new career on me. And it can be daunting. And, and what exactly, Lord, is your dream for me in my profession? Maybe it's a, a ministry. Maybe you have a heart for a broken area, for people where you see they are hurting, and you feel like God is calling you to minister to these people. I don't know what that dream is. But I do want to encourage you to keep digging in. Keep asking God to show you what that is, to lay that passion on your heart. Because let me tell you, when we have a dream that is from God, it is motivating, it is energizing, and it allows us to see the giver of the dream in a whole new way. And so don't stop asking don't stop searching. But regardless of what your dream is, the reality is that while we are here on earth, we are going to spend an awful lot of our life either waiting to figure out what the dream is or in the process of pursuing the dream. We're talking about the daily grind the day in, the day out, the nitty-gritty. What are we supposed to do while we are waiting or in process of pursuing? What exactly does that look like? Because whether it is to see your marriage healed, whether it is to see your um, relationship with that person renewed and redeemed, whether it is to switch careers or whether it is a new ministry area, the reality is it's not going to happen overnight. God doesn't lay that passion upon our hearts and then we wake up the next morning and it's there. It is a process and it takes time. And this is where we find Joseph. We find Joseph having been sold to the Ishmaelites and taken into Egypt and then sold to Potiphar. 
Now, Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's high officials. So he's one of the main men in Pharaoh's court. He's got an in. The captain, the guard. So very little is going on that Potiphar doesn't know about. So let's jump into the text. We're going to pick up with him. And the Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar. So he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And from the day that Joseph was put in charge of the master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. So basically, this guy now has the life, right? He is able to relax, do his job, come home, put his feet up, and everything is taken care of for him. Now, we don't know exactly how long Joseph was in Potiphar's house. We can estimate it was somewhere around 11 years. We know he was 30 when he finally went before Pharaoh and 17 when he was sold. So you do the math, and there was two years of prison and maybe a little bit more. And so we're somewhere around 10 or 11 years in Potiphar's household. That's a long time. That's a long time when I thought my whole family was going to be bowing down to me. That's a long time when I think I had it made. Think about it. What were you doing 10 years ago? A lot can change in 10 years. I had babies, toddlers. My life looks a lot different now than it did then. Obviously, God was with Joseph. But the reality is, Joseph could not have been sitting in a corner stewing for 11 years. This. Joseph could not have been consumed with bitterness and stomping his feet that he was not where he thought he would be. The story wouldn't look like this. The reality is we know surprisingly little about what was going on in Joseph's head. The story does not give us a lot of insight into what his emotions were. In fact, a little aside here, the people whose emotions we know about, the people who acted in their emotions, it didn't work out so well. So the brothers, we knew what their emotions were, right? They were jealous. They were angry. They were envious. That ended up in attempted murder. And a father who thought he lost his son. And we'll see later that decision followed them for the rest of their lives. Even Potiphar's wife, who will see acts out of her own emotion later, that doesn't end well. See, 
when we are acting out of emotion, rarely are our decisions focused on God. And this is something I'm passionate about, so you've probably heard me talk about it before, probably because I was someone who acted out of her emotions for a very long time. I mean, I was a teenage girl. Isn't that kind of what we do? And I can honestly, out of all of the things that I have walked through in my life, all of the hard stuff, the things that were really my fault, I can trace every single one of them back to the fact that I acted out of emotion. I let my emotions dictate my actions. And the reality is, those emotions are really important. We've got to listen to them, but they have got to drive us to our knees. We have got to take them to God and be like, what am I supposed to do with this? We seek the Bible and say, what kind of counsel does this give me? We talk to those who have been walking the walk longer than we have and say, where do you see God in this mess? Because all I see are my emotions. Even when I was justified, when I had every right to be angry or every right to walk in fear. When I lived that way, it never ended well. So back to Joseph. It is he wasn't acting in that. What we do know are two things. We know that God was with him. It says it again and again in the text. We know that God was with him, and we know that Joseph kept his eyes on God. He worked as if for God. He did his best despite his circumstances. We know the choices that he made and that they were choices to do what was right and what was good. We don't hear about him trying to escape. We don't hear about him trying to undermine the other servants. We don't hear about him pouting and stamping and slamming doors, as I might have been inclined so to do. No. Look, Jesus had, Jesus, Jesus too. Joseph had some serious ups and downs in his life. It did not go the way he thought it would. And the reality is, even landing in Potiphar's house, that's a temporary stop for him. It's going to get worse. Let's look back at the text. Bear with me. We're going to take a chunk here. So we hear Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. We're going to pause right there. This is how we know that he kept his eyes on God. He recognizes the wickedness when it comes, and he doesn't want to sin against God. Somewhere in these 10, 11 years, Joseph has become fully dependent upon God. We didn't see that in the 17-year-old in the fields, did we? 
we didn't see a full dependence upon God. We saw an arrogance, a confidence that came from nothing that he had done. So, Back to the text. We know that somewhere around here, God has, I mean, Joseph has put his eyes back on God and his confidence is God, and he is not going to be doing this great sin against God. So she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. Another pause button here. He avoided temptation. He knew this was going to cause me problems. I need to steer clear as much as is within my power. Unpause. One day, however, no one was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by this cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. I saw this image of this half-naked man booking down the street trying to get away from the woman pursuing him. When she saw that he was holding his cloak and had fled, she called out to her servants. And soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us all. He came into my room to to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her. And that Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Are you kidding me? It just keeps getting worse. The hits just keep coming for this guy. Here he is trying his very hardest to do what is right, to make good choices, to avoid temptation. He's saying no when he's supposed to, and he keeps getting knocked down. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like no matter what, I keep trying, I keep doing what is right, and just when I stand up and get back on my feet, another hit comes and knocks me down. You're in good company. Joseph certainly knew how that felt. I think most of us know how that that feels. So much so that I know James wrote, to consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And James goes on to remind us that if we need, if we lack wisdom, we should ask him. And he will give it to us. So we can pretty much be assured trials are going to come. I don't know why sometimes it feels like there's a whole lot more of them than other times. But they are going to come. It's interesting. Um, Jody Dietrichs wrote the book, uh, G- The Jesus-Hearted Woman. And in it, she talks about um, the kinds of trials that come our way. And she classifies them into three different categories. And she says there's the, uh, my bad, my bad, 
Um, you know, so the my bad is those situations I've talked about where, yeah, whether I acted in emotion and I made a wrong decision or whether I made a wrong decision and didn't realize it was a bad thing at the time, but it kind of bit me in the butt later. Either way, those things are my bads, right? So that's one of the types of trials that comes our way, those that we kind of brought on ourselves inadvertently or not. My bad. And then there are those trials that we call your bad. That's your bad, right? We had no control over it. Potiphar's wife. Joseph did nothing wrong here. He did nothing to encourage her. In fact, he did everything to discourage her. And her decisions hurt Joseph. So that is a, yeah, that's your bad. That's your bad. And then there are those things that she classifies as too bad. Those are those things that are outside of anyone's control. It's the medical diagnosis. It's the natural disaster. It's those hiccups that prevent you from doing what you thought you were supposed to be doing when you thought you were supposed to be doing it. Those are the two bads of life. And Joseph certainly saw his share of trials. And we can argue that some of them might have been my bads. But certainly he had his share of your bads. Certainly there was time and time again where people were making decisions that directly impacted him in ways he couldn't control. But the reality is it doesn't really matter once you're in the middle of it, how you got there. What matters is what you're going to do with it. It's good to recognize, particularly when it's our bads, so we can not repeat it again. But once you're in the thick of it, you got to move through it either way. You're not getting around it. And so what we see through Joseph is the recognition in the midst of the worst of it. God never left. He was always there. And he brought blessings despite the trials. So when we are in the thick of things, when we are in the daily grind, the everyday, when things are rough, God is still there. Be intentional about looking to see his hand. Sometimes it is as small as a butterfly. And sometimes it is as obvious as a billboard sign. One of my favorite stories, I had a teacher um, years ago through the preschool, and she had been born and raised Catholic and really had kind of wandered a little bit from her faith and started working with us and, um, you know, started to really wrestle with who God was in her life and what that meant. And she had been driving her daughter back and forth um, to uh, field hockey tournaments left and right. And so there was one day her daughter had fallen asleep in the back of the car, and um, she was on her way home. And for whatever reason, she found herself in conversation with God. And she sat there with tears streaming down her face. And she said, Lord God, I need to know, are you real? Are you there? Do you hear me? Am I alone in this? And she said she turned a curve. And there in front of her was a huge billboard 
that says, I love you, dash Jesus. And she wept. She said, okay, I hear you. Sometimes when we look around, we can see God as clearly as that billboard. And other times, all we see is rain. And we need to ask others to come along beside us and help to point out where God is in the midst of that mess. Because I promise you, he has not left. And the other thing, we need to keep our eyes on God. We need to orient ourselves so that our focus is on him. We see this time and again through Joseph's walk. Despite the circumstances, his eyes are on God. Let's pick back up. We, uh, we just left Potiphar telling her husband the story of how Joseph tried to assault her. So Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. I'm going to pause for a second. There is some debate among theologians about whether Potiphar was furious at Joseph or his wife. Odds are this was not his wife's first time trying to seduce someone. And Potiphar had watched Joseph for 10 or 11 years knew his character. He put him into the position because he knew God was with him. That's what the text said. An Egyptian who didn't worship God saw God was with Joseph and put him in position. So one might be able to theorize that he was really kind of ticked off that his wife put him in a position that now he had to get rid of Joseph for what she'd done. Again, doesn't matter how he got there, he ended up in the king's prison. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So there he is in prison by no fault of his own. Again, you'd find me like thumb and mouth fetal position in the corner. Clearly, that was not Joseph's default position. He kept his eyes on God, and he did what he did. He continued to serve he continued to do what God put in front of him every single day. He was there for two years. For two years, he was faithful in his duties. He was faithful to God. We have seen him choose with intentionality to run from temptation. We have seen him choose to pursue God. We have seen him choose not to engage in his emotions, but rather to go before God and ask, what is it you'd have me do? 
again and again and again. Truly, I think Joseph epitomizes integrity. Right? The definition of integrity is the quality of being honest, having strong moral principles, and moral uprightness. It's a great definition, right? I mean, that's, yes, integrity. And that's what we all want to be, right? We all want to have good, behave, good morals. We all want to have strong moral beliefs. And we all want to be honest. These are all things that we can agree on. And as Christians, we believe that that comes from the Bible, that we learn how we're supposed to act and what that morality looks like based on what the Bible tells us on who Jesus is and what he did for us. And sometimes having integrity is easy. Sometimes it's like, ah, oh, black and white. Of course this is what we're supposed to do. This is not a hard problem. There is an awful lot of the time when the world is gray. We're just not quite sure. And it might be a little bit easier if we didn't have to. is. It is not about checking off a list of do's and don'ts. It is not about reading the list and saying, I can never say or do or eat or be. It is about recognizing who Jesus is and what he did for us. And it becomes an act of love. It becomes a relationship. Which is why I really prefer the second definition of integrity. The state of being whole and undivided. Solidarity and unity. The state of being whole and undivided. That's where it's at. I want my heart and my mind to be wholly, undividedly on God. And when that becomes our focus, when we stop looking at the circumstances, when we stop looking at the too bads, when we stop looking at the people who we really think have more to change than we do, and instead we start looking at the giver of the dream. We put our eyes on God. We can let go of those emotions. We can let go of those circumstances because you know what? He wants to redeem them. He wants to take our brokenness and redeem it. Because that's kind of his business. He's in the redemption business. He makes all things new. So yes, God calls us to integrity. He calls us to a unity with him in all things. Our eyes on him. And the road to our dream may be long and it may be winding, but it is paved with daily opportunities 
for us to see him. And we discover that while we walk down that road, that dream is great. But the joy, the joy comes in the journey, comes in the process. Will you stand with me and pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you are a God of redemption. That you can take all things, Lord, and use them for our good. Thank you, God, that you call us to joy. Because these roads, Lord, they can be bumpy. And thank you that you never leave us. God, I ask that you would go with us today, through this week, and help us, Lord, to have integrity, to keep our eyes on you, despite the fray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.